That was Glenn Gould performing the prelude of Bach's first partita for keyboard, BWV 825. And this piece is written around the key of B-flat major. You know, Bach wrote several suites of keyboard works. That was the general term we would describe these as suites. And it's a it's this collection that in Broke Times was a collection of different pieces, usually dance pieces we would call them, written around the same key center and presented as a set. And these pieces would vary by style and tempo. And as I mentioned, they'd be dances. Now, we don't actually know if people danced to these pieces written by Bach. You can imagine if a generation or two before these were danced to and simply the forms had come along as kind of a standard thing that you would do. It's kind of like if you turn on um, pop music today on the radio, you could dance to it, but it doesn't mean that that's its only purpose is to dance to it. Uh, Bach's first collection, he called it his Opus One, and he gave it a kind of a unique name, the Klavier Übung, and it contains six what he called partitas. He didn't call them suites, he called them partitas for the keyboard. And this first one is uh, presented six movements, a prelude, an alemande, a corrente, a sarabande, two minuets, and a jig. And I'll talk a little bit more in a moment about kind of the, the pedigree of those types of uh, movements and where they come from. Despite them being marketed as uh, Opus One, he did not publish a lot of his work. Uh, you won't see a lot of um, what what we see in our uh, for sale today as records, for instance, or albums. Um, as things Bach actually published, you know, things like the Brandenburgs, we found them years later after his death. Um, but you can imagine if Bach was actually setting out to publish this set, that these probably were mature pieces. This was probably among what he considered his best. At least that's what we would, would guess. They were published in 1731. And if you've been kind of following along with Bach's years, uh, he is at the height of his career as a composer at this time. Uh, either Bach or someone in his circle must have thought that his ability as a composer was good enough to put these out into the public's eye and to either get attention or to make some money. When we talk about the keyboards, more often than not we find recordings on piano and the harpsichord for these types of pieces. And the, and the example I just gave was, was piano. And of course, if you don't know Glenn Gould, he uh, Bach was very important to him in his recording career, and although he explored other composers, uh, including some from the 20th century, he's probably best known today for his, his interpretation of Bach, which everybody does not agree is uh, good, but most everybody would say it's, it's interesting for better or worse. And uh, uh, several years ago, they came out with the Glenn Gould Bach collection on CD, and uh, I picked it up because I had little bits and pieces of, of Gould on uh, piano with Bach, but definitely it's a cool set, and it's kind of its own unique thing. I probably wouldn't want that to be my only uh, rendition of Bach's keyboard works, but um, 
it's always interesting to say if you're listening to a historically informed version that's being performed on something like a harpsichord or even a clavichord to go back to the Gould and see how he played with uh, rhythm or how he played with, with bringing certain lines out on a piano, which is a little more challenging to do on a historical instrument. If you think about the purpose of this type of music, it speaks to me either for the amateur, for playing at home as entertainment, or music that's be performed at a court. And I'm not sure Bach's motivation for publishing his music uh, when he did, but it wouldn't be too much of a conjecture that after living in Leipzig for nearly 10 years, he may have been entertaining opportunities to move elsewhere. Uh, if you do look at Bach's biography, he had he had troubles with uh, those in charge, and we know that he's probably sending music out on a number of occasions to try to get noticed in other places to maybe consider employment elsewhere. But of course, uh, Bach does spend uh, a good part of his life in Leipzig since the 1720s uh, to his death in 1750. And so even if that was the intent of this, it, it never probably worked out for him, did it? Um, the first partita is, I would describe it as kind of light in nature. There's nothing particularly heavy about it. Everything is kind of an uplifting major key. Um, but you've got to understand that it's, it is showing off right away some of his gift for presenting an easy-to-follow and interesting melodic line. He does play with con uh, counterpoint a little bit. Um, and we've talked about that before in terms of voices. Uh, if you're playing two, two voices in the left hand and two voices in the right hand on a keyboard, you know, uh, a melody might start in the bass and then it might go just like in, in a chorale setting for four voices, uh, bass, tenor, alto, soprano. In choral music, you'd have, that's where the nomenclature comes from, moving melodic pieces around in different voices. The other thing that you're going to find, particularly in this first partita, is uh, Bach's taste for rhythmic motifs. And you'll see little little cells, I would call them, little rhythmic things that, that are easy to recognize that he plays with in terms of repetition. And these things kind of move around um, and kind of carry your interest. Uh, I was listening to... Um, a TED Talk not long ago about how he described beauty in music in the presenter, and I should probably go back and find who I'm talking about so you can listen to that, but um, he talked about repetition and how repetition in music is one of the ways that we ascribe beauty to it. So what I'm going to have you listen to now is what I think is probably the, the coolest of the uh, dance movements from this first partita, the jig. And you're going to hear this little mode of thump, 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 bump, 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 kind of playing around. And what he does, of course, is have the uh, hands move. And the other thing you'll hear is there's kind of this perpetual motion machine, I would call it. This idea that things are just kind of tumbling forth and things are in motion. It's kind of like almost a mechanical machine um, uh, of things being just pushed forward. It's kind of the, the elements that he's playing with between the six movements here in the first partita. And the examples that I'm going to play for you today all come from an album on the Alpha label by B 
Benjamin Allard, and he's playing on harpsichord. And I'll give you details in the show notes about where to find this album online. So this is the jig from Box First Partita. So one of the things you hear is that, that repetition, right? And I kind of cut in at the very beginning, and then it repeats again. And that's another feature of these dance movements in Baroque forms. They always have repeats in them. Um, we would typically call this a binary form if you went to a music class and studied um, these types of things. But basically, you have an A section and you have a B section. And you would probably repeat the first one uh, one time and repeat the second one one time. And when you look at the large structure of a piece, this kind of repetition thing would later take itself to be usually written out in the sonata allegro form that came to rise in the classical era of having repeats and having themes come back. But the, the origin of that is likely um, not something very theoretical or philosophical, it's practical. Right? You're writing a dance piece, and people want to extend the music for an extended period of time. You want to go for another round of dancing? Well, you just repeat that section again. And we can imagine that that's how repeats came to be a form of these types of music. You will find that in performance of pieces like this, not all performers take all repeats. Uh, if you look at, for instance, some of the timings in Gould's reading of Bach, some of them look very short compared to other readings, and that sometimes is because he's playing, you know, three or four times as fast. Other times it's because he's just skipping the repeats. Um, that becomes a very controversial thing in Bach's Goldberg variations, which each have repeats in them, and to fit the whole work on one record or one CD, um, typically that was a practical concern. Folks would cut out some of the repeats. Some people will take every repeat, and then there's controversy about whether you do something different in the repeat. And that's a piece of performance practice that's, that's sometimes argued about what you do, what's your function as the performer in a repeat. And one of the prevailing ideas is that you first would play it straight as you see it on the page, and the second was your opportunity to sort of show off and add some of your own elements into the performance, whether it's extra ornaments, whether it's... Um, uh, probably not going off and doing different harmonies or something like that, but one of the pianists that has kind of taken liberties with that outside the Baroque structure of, of what would be normal in performance um, is Vladimir Feltzman. Um, Feltzman, who's a pianist, um, uh, basically in his recording of some of Bach will do things like play the repeats on the upper half of the keyboard or switch hands and, and invert the hands, which um, sounds crazy, but he usually comes up with some pretty satisfying results. You're not going to find any of, any of the uh, avant-garde in this recording. Uh, what I have found that uh, comparing different readings of this, what I like a lot is he's kind of taking 
uh, almost his time in some of these pieces. Uh, that was the jig. That was probably the fastest thing that you would hear in this whole thing. And it wasn't too fast. And what I like about that is it's enabling me, as I listen, to really appreciate uh, all the artistry that Bach has been putting into the piece. And again, the elements we're thinking about here are melody, um, repetition, and rhythmic motives or motifs, depending on how you want to say it. Um, so after we get an opening prelude that includes some contrapuntal elements, and what I mean by that is Bach is, is playing with, again, melody in different, uh, different voices, different parts. He gives us that allemande, um, it's written out in this recording as a corrente, which would be the Italian version of the corrente. Um, a corrente is typically the second most fast type of dance in a suite. Then we get a sarabande, which is the slowest. We get a pair of minuets. And here's this idea again of, of a binary form, but a minuet is its own binary form. And then we get a second minuet. And we'll talk a little more about that. Uh, and these alternation of pieces, again, wasn't anything new in Bach, but it was kind of the norm. It's what you were expected to do if you were write, uh, to write keyboard suites. Um, Handel wrote in this way, and for s over a generation in the French harpsichord liter literature, which they would many times called ordre, um, you'd have composers like d'Angelbert, Forqueray, and Louis-Francois Couperin, who wrote in these collections of dances. And some of them might be very long with repetitions, and some might just do one of each. And of course, with Bach, we're getting the end of the Baroque period. So this is kind of the, the final stand of the, the best of the best in terms of what this age would produce in, the term, in terms of this kind of form. And what's unique, I think, here is that Bach is calling them partitas. If we take, let's look at, listen to the, the courant or the corrente. It's all about a melody that's easy to follow. And we're also getting those rhythmic motives. The rhythmic aspect of Bach's music, I think, is sometimes overlooked. We always talk about his counterpoint. Um, but it's that quality in the music that allows you to kind of tap your foot to it. And it's not always something that's easy to see on the page as you're looking at the score. Um, because while the the, the, what the notes look like and seeing repetition is kind of easy to see. What makes this kind of foot tapping music is how Bach is changing harmony with these repetitions in uh, rhythm. And what Bach is basically doing is putting those shifts of harmony just in the right spots. So this is from the Corrente or Corrant, um, another fast movement from his first partita. If you're falling for that rhythmic pulse, listen to what's happening in the left hand as this piece uh, resumes.
So you might not have heard it very clearly because I was clapping there to kind of drive home that rhythmic pulse thing. But Allard, when he does his repeats, will tend to add in a few little ornaments, a few little extras, if you will, to the melodic line. And it's not overdone. It's what I would say is tastefully done. Um, If you've listened carefully the first time before the repeat happens, you're usually going to get a little extra nugget, um, which is kind of cool to hear. And that's stuff that I know performers deal with in terms of recordings is how much do they do that. Typically what I find is when I've gone to a live performance, performers will will do more of that, um, and it just grows taxing. It's not spontaneous per se if we do it in a recording. So I really don't know uh, Mr. Allard's uh, uh, philosophy about that here, but what you're going to find in this recording as a whole in the set that he's uh, recorded for Alpha is that he does uh, add some new elements um, off the page, but in taste and in style of Bach on his repeats. So that was the opening of the, the first menuet, um, a, a dance in, in three beats per bar. Uh, it reminds me of a music box. It's a kind of perpetual motion going on. You think of a little music box going in the background, and nothing's too harmful. It's just kind of quiet doing its thing. Got a nice little melody caught up in that regular moving way, so regular and as I said, almost mechanical. And that backdrop allows a talented performer to go in and insert any number of little quirky ornaments in tempo because things are so regular. And so we're going to listen and and hear a little bit of that. But I mentioned earlier that there's two minuets, one and two, and they usually vary a lot in character. In some cases, composers will put the second one in a, a minor key or a major key, opposite of what the other one was. In this case, Bach keeps us in the major mode. Um, It's not atypical to see those pairs, and Bach removes for us in the second one that perpetual motion, uh, almost giving us like a breather, right? Um, And that first menuet then gets repeated after the breather, so we get kind of a big A, B, A type structure. And that's where maybe on the second reading of this of this first minuet, we wouldn't repeat both sections. And again, why repeats? Likely if people wanted the dance to go on and on, you had built-in areas that you could keep repeating. And as we know from performance that in typically uh, long dances like this where there would be lots of repeats, that was a place for musicians to sort of get fancy and add things to it. By the time we get to Bach, however, everything is so intricately uh, written out that we don't get this kind of just open score where we can do all kinds of crazy things. But what I want you to listen for is some of those little ornaments that Allard puts in there uh, second time around, and which just makes, I think, uh, adds a little bit of joy to, to the whole thing.
So that last piece there was the, the second minuet, which I want to hear just the contrast and da 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 he just ta uses the same pulse in in one, two, three, one, two, three, but takes out that kind of busyness of the perpetual idea going on. Um there's lots to point out in here, and I think you'll find that if you look at all of Bach's six partitas, that each movement kind of has some interesting things in it. Of course, we're talking about one of the world's most accomplished composers, and we might expect that there's some kind of cool stuff within each one. And I, I haven't wanted to um, make this you know, an hour-long podcast and, and analyze each individual movement. I can point you to some things online where if you're more interested in that, you can read that by some experts. But I did want to conclude here that Bach's first partita is about this feeling of perpetual motion. Um, he seems to be exploring this idea of that kind of mechanical type of structure that just has even rhythm going throughout and then peppering melody uh, in and out of that texture. Um, we get melody as an important thing, I think, in almost every one of these mo movements. And sometimes the melody is harder to follow than others. But if you think about Bach as being this contrapuntalist contra who was all about uh, writing fugues, and that's obviously melody, but it's melody in a kind of a uh, different way. In here, Bach is really writing out melodies that we can follow and, and then even we'll sing along with. Uh, even if we're just kind of humming in the background, tapping our foot. And the tapping foot piece has to do with these repeated rhythmic motives. Bach is big on exploring those in this partita. And in this way, we could almost frame Bach as a minimalist composer, or taking the idea of taking just a few elements and seeing how he can explore them through six different pieces put together uh, here in the key of B-flat major. We're going to finish by listening to a little bit of the prelude, which is the piece that introduces these elements. I want to see if you can, on your own, pick some of them out. Melody, rhythmic, repetition, and the concept of perpetual motion. This is John Hendren. I want to thank you for listening to Bachcast. This is episode number six.